So Money, episode 975, Cleo Stiller, author of Modern Manhood. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. On the one hand, none of this is new, and it's been bubbling under the surface for decades, arguably forever. But what's also happening is we have a younger generation coming up where they're completely questioning what it means to be a man and woman altogether. Welcome to So Money, everybody. My guest has interviewed nearly 100 men to learn their hopes and fears and what it means to be a good man. Cleo Stiller is here, and she has always liked to have conversations that were a little uncomfortable. She has received a Peabody Award nomination for public service journalism and an Emmy Award nomination as well. Her TV show, Sex Right Now, takes a no stigma, no judgment, and fact-based approach to conversations about health, gender, and pop culture. And now her latest book, Modern Manhood, Conversations About the Complicated World of Being a Good Man Today, sheds light on all the gray areas out there using conversations that real men and women are having with their friends, their dates, their family. She even turns some of the questions on me. How would I feel about tipping on a first date? You might be surprised to hear my answer. That's what makes her a good journalist. Here's Cleo Stiller. Cleo Stiller, welcome to So Money. Congratulations on your new book, your newest book, Modern Manhood, Conversations About the Complicated World of Being a Good Man Today. Bravo. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You don't, you're not the type of journalist that shies away from complex issues. You know, you've written about and you've done documentaries, or I think it was a television show about sex. You've won Emmy Awards and, you know, Peabody's, and people are just can't get enough of your work. <laughs> but what made you want to embark on this topic? This is really sensitive stuff right now. And I mean, it's really subjective. Like, what does define. Mm kind of a good man today, what did you find? Well, I'll tell you. So my first job in journalism was as a producer for Bloomberg covering financial news. So um, I did that, right? And then I segued to Sex Right Now with Cleo Stiller, which covered topics kind of um, sex, body confidence, gender identity, and the way that current... um, cultural trends and technology was shifting the way that millennials and Gen Xers were having intimate conversations and doing intimate things in their lives. That was kind of unprecedented, right? So the through point from Bloomberg to my television show was that I am have gotten quite good at talking to people about very intimate subjects that are typically quite uncomfortable to talk about. And uh, modern manhood, I will tell you, this was the third, you know, my publisher came to me um, to do a a book for them. And this was the one I put at the bottom, this idea, because I knew it would be so provocative, both for female readers and for male readers, right? And I was going to get it coming and going. Um, And of course, the publisher was like, that's the one we want. And uh, the why I got the idea to do this book was because while I was hosting my show, Sex Right Now, um, which was 
made by an all woman women team but we knew that our audience was split 50-50 so men were watching it and women were watching it and in our third season 2017 the Harvey Weinstein scandal breaks and me too hits the mainstream right and i started getting a lot of messages from men mostly straight men who watched my show and they were like are you going to do a season on this because I have so much to say about what's happening right now, but I'm kind of afraid to say anything publicly because I don't want to get in trouble and it's all so confusing. And then they inevitably would ask me a question that had they asked me five years ago, right, would have seemed really basic. But at the rate that things are changing right now between women and men and non-binary folks, um, it is confusing. And I was empathetic though. I thought like, gosh, hell if I know, right? So these questions kind of fell into the same camps over the last two years um, in the realms of dating, sex, work, money, parenting, and friendship. Mm. Um, And so the book is based on all of the questions that, I mean, this is a user generated, you know, like book essentially. I mean, um, Every chapter aims to answer two to three questions that I heard over and over and over again about what it means to be a good man. What's the bottom line? Don't be an asshole. I mean, (laughs) that's got to be in there somewhere, right? The thing is, that's... That's a knee-jerk reaction, and I completely understand. I myself have thought, dude, just don't be a jerk, right? But that's not helpful because what I – so the other reason why I wanted to write this book was because I was going to a lot of events. And Furnish, you probably went to them as well, right? Conversations and events that were happening Mm -hmm. in the aftermath of Me Too that were primarily Mm -hmm. attended by women and survivors. And – there would be these really profound, important conversations happening. And then inevitably someone would be like, where are the men? Where are our allies? They don't care about this. And I knew from all the questions I was getting from men, they do care. And they were talking about this, right? I heard over and over again, like me and my guy friends are on a group text and we're trying to figure out X, Y, Z. So I knew men cared. I knew these guys over and over again said, I'm a good guy. I thought I was doing the right thing. Like, what am I supposed to do? So telling someone, don't be a dick, not... It's so tempting, but it's really not helpful right now. No, you're 100% right. And I remember post Me Too, you know, the wave had just come crashing and... It felt like there was no gray area to genuinely like questioning your behavior, like men thinking out loud, saying out loud things like, did I do something inappropriate? Have I done it? And then people saying, well, if you don't even know, mm-hmm. if you don't even know the answer to that question, like clearly you got issues. Like it's not that difficult. But how should instead we be having these conversations so that everyone can feel heard and not immediately bucketed as the jerk? Okay. So first of all, this, you know, the book Modern Manhood does not deal at all in violent situations, in 
you know, like the Harvey Weinstein, the Bill Cosby situations that I think most people would say are pretty black and white. Mm-hmm. They, the book deals exclusively in the quote unquote gray areas. The ones where you're like, I don't know, like, it, right. So take work, for example, right? Mm-hmm. What is going to offend some people in the workplace is very dependent on that person's upbringing, uh, their their background in terms of the gender, class, ethnicity, their personality, right? And so if we're kind of at this point, and this is, you know, what's playing in with me too right now is like, is, is a lot of things happening. On the one hand, none of this is new and it's been bubbling under the surface for decades, arguably forever. But What's also happening is we have a younger generation coming up where they're completely questioning what it means to be a man and woman altogether. So what's the right behavior is it's specific to an individual. And where I think that we get hung up on is like, well, what does a good man do? A good man, you know, people brought up uh, Leave It to Beaver over and over again. And I thought that, that was really interesting. interesting. That show went off air in the 1960s. What? Yeah. So that's like still this mode that some of us really cling mm-hmm. to, right? Um, but there was a lot wrong in the behind the scenes of Leave it to Beaver, right? So there's this feeling of like, oh, it's gotten so complicated right now. It used to be really simple. But like, that's not really true. We are overdue for a correction. So I mean, you and I will we'll get into more granular topics. We can be specific about examples. But overarching, what I recommend for people to do is be less concerned with what does a good man do and what does a good woman do and get really clear on what a good person does. What kind of person do you want to be in the world? Like, you know... Do you hold a door open for a woman or is that offensive now? Are you going to make her think that you think that she can't hold the door open for you? What are you supposed to do? Uh, right? It, you know, it, yeah. your head can explode. <laughs> Let me help you here. Hold the door open for the person coming behind you because that's the nice thing to do. And if for some reason you do not want to hold the door open for people that come behind you, that's good information to have about yourself as well. So what I always recommend to folks when they find things really confusing right now is um, do a lot of listening, right? If there is behavior that you, you know, you, you grew up thinking it was fine, you know, your father, your mother, your friends all did it, it seemed okay, but now you're hearing that it hurts people, hear that, right? Listen to other people's perspectives and then think like, okay, what's the motivation behind your behavior, right? What drives it? Did did you think it was acceptable? Did you think it was funny? Did you think it was valiant or noble? If so, okay. But if it hurts people, can you adjust your behavior? Like, do you want to do it anyway? So I, what I encourage folks in the book to do, and this is like, I don't tell anyone what to do, right? I assume my readers are adults with agency, um, but I empower them uh, to hear a little bit of like historical and cultural context for how we got to where we got. And then 
a sampling of interviews, right, from folks all over the country from different states and regions and ethnic backgrounds and class backgrounds. So you know what people are saying and doing. And then encourage them, get right with yourself, right? Are you quite sure that when you compliment someone on their outfit that you really mean well? Okay. Can you can you take that motivation of meaning well and do it in a different way? So maybe instead of complimenting someone on their appearance, can you compliment them on their work ethic or their performance at work? Um, it might feel annoying, but these subtle changes, like they're not that hard. And it's actually very empowering when you kind of check your own motivation. Think like, all right, if I'm being motivated by goodwill and good intention, go on. Like you're a good guy. You're doing the right thing. You're a good person. What about in the context of a relationship? So I get at work, we may not know where everyone's coming from. So we sort of have to be a little bit more, not to say more careful, but it's in that context, sort of having a modus operandi that is sort of one size fits all good guy, one size fits all is, is, is probably the way to go. Like if, if you think that this might be offensive, just don't do it in a relationship. You know, we all come to relationships with different backgrounds, ideas, and ideals of like, what is a good relationship? Mm. What is a good partner for men? We're hearing even in this gen- this day and age that a lot of men still want to be the provider, the financial provider to them mm. that symbolizes mm. being the good man, being the good husband. How do we reconcile that in a relationship, especially when it comes to money, right? Because so much of who we, our self-worth is tied to how we earn in a relationship. How do we have those, how do we reconcile that? Did you, did you tackle this in the book? Yes. So we have a chapter called the money chapter. And I actually was a little bit surprised that that became a chapter we needed to hit because you don't think of me too and money as directly connected unless you are furnished. Oh, I totally do. (laughs) (laughs) And you listen to this podcast a lot because then you know. So I actually knew because I had heard a panel that you were on with Suze Orman, right? Where you talked about the, and and even your motivation for starting She Stacks. Mm -hmm. Um, This idea, right? That women can never truly be on equal footing with men without being financially liberated, right? Yes. Right. So, and this is like a major theme in your podcast. And I personally mention in this book that I grew up with a mother who taught me a quote unquote, like good woman, a strong woman is someone who is financially independent. And so I've had this financial feminism in my upbringing and I've increasingly met women who have that as well. Right. That's great. Um, It is great, but it butts up against um, this idea, this lingering hangover idea that we have that men are supposed to be the quote-unquote breadwinners in the relationship. And as you pointed out in your book previously, when she makes more, um, particularly in urban settings, right? But we know that younger women are increasingly out-earning their male partners. So this is, this is, this idea we have is increasingly outdated and it's causing more and more problems. And I got that question from men a lot. Mm -hmm. Like it surprised them because these were guys who in 
other areas of their lives lives consider themselves pretty progressive in terms of gender roles. Yes. You know, they were fine walking with a baby Bjorn or, you know, doing other things around the house. But when it came to money, they had this really like hangover idea that they should be making more. And what we had to kind of do with this chapter then, right, is, okay, what is it about this notion of providing? Like what is, what's underlying the money issue, right? And it's really, it's not money specifically. It's just that in this world we live in, we think of providing exclusively in terms of money. And when I started talking to people, um, have you ever spoken with Dr. Helen Fisher? I have not. Okay. She's a biological anthropologist and has written maybe seven books on the um, science of human mating and attraction. And I called her to ask her about this. Are men, quote unquote, hardwired Mm -hmm. to be their providers? And she said to me, listen, Cleo, because she's got some attitude too. So listen, Cleo, men want to be a provider, not the provider. And she went on to clarify that this idea that we have as man as the sole provider is actually only um, specific to when humans started an agrarian society. Mm -hmm. So back in caveman days, women and men had dual, we had a dual income model for relationships. Mm -hmm. Men hunted and brought home big kill, right? But that was like only every five days or so. Women were responsible, as we know, for like berries and vegetables and killing small little creatures, right? So that was part of the daily fare. Men provided the luxury item, but women provided the daily fare. And so it was, was, we are, why? And also every scientist I spoke to for this book was like, please stop using the word hardwired. They hate that. Oh, really? Um, They hate that (laughs) because most of them would argue we're not hardwired for anything really. Um, But that, so, okay. Conditioned. Conditioned. Exactly. Conditioned. And that's much more accurate, right? So both women and men are meant to provide. That's how we initially created human societies. But then when we started farming and planting our crops, right, then it was men who were kind of doing the tilling, they were out cutting down wood, and then women were relegated to farms and the home area. And that's where we developed this idea then of a single provider family. Hmm. And that has kind of maintained, you know, into the industrial revolution, although it's very depending on class, right? I mean, sometimes women had to work. And how many centuries ago was this? So this is very many, many, many years of conditioning. Yes, um, exactly. Which is really hard to get over. Exactly. And that's the thing. So like, this is not going to change overnight, but it's so important to know, you know, because I hear this a lot, right? That when you understand where you came from and how you got here, it's a little bit easier to start poking holes in your perceived reality that no longer works for you. So the thing is, if you are in a couple where the man makes more and the woman makes less, and it doesn't bother either one of you, 
then that there's no problem. This is just a conversation for couples who it does bother. And based on my research, it bothers a lot of them. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really great point because what I discovered too, is I was on the speaking trail talking about female breadwinners back when I first published the book, there was a lot of debate that would transpire around this very topic, which is there are couples that are completely happy with him being the sole breadwinner and she being at the forefront of more of the domestic stuff, family life. And that's what they want. They don't care if it's not postmodern. They don't, right. you know, they don't care what other people think. I mean, personally, I have opinions about that because I still, at the, at the end of the day, I like worry about her. <laughs> I'm like, is she going to be okay? Um, but, but does it even matter what I think? If they're happy, then should I just let it go? Or is there like still yeah. a better way? Like I want to, I kind of want your opinion on that because it, I feel like there's still some, there's, look, every relationship is vulnerable no matter how it's designed. There's a lot of vulnerabilities at play and at stake, but is there a quote unquote better way about it? Like is dual income better than one income? This is kind of veering into a different whole different territory, but I just, I do wonder about that sometimes. Well, I mean, I would put that back on you because I, I'm a journalist, right? What I do really well is surface people's interior lives mm-hmm. and interior stories. And I just share, okay, this is what everyone's doing. What do you think about it? And I'll tell you, one thing I was surprised was millennials are intentional about everything. We personalize everything. We need everything just the way we want it and how we want it, right? But I was shocked to find when I interviewed a lot of couples that they had not been very intentional about the way that they were handling money in their relationship. And it was just kind of haphazard. And they knew it was haphazard and they were embarrassed about it. Hmm. Um, And so I, again, I just, I told you how I was raised, but that doesn't mean, you know, I mean, so I can't. If, if there, you know, there are certain, um, disorders listed in the DSM that are only considered disorders if the person who has these symptoms is troubled by them. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a really Uh, important, I mean, I, I use that approach with my reporting all the time. So I do not judge and I have no stigma. mm -hmm. Unless you are hurting someone, right? Right, right. So when I hear from someone who's not being mindful about their finances and the way that they approach money, then I think there's a problem, right? You, I really, and I saw this over and over again. People were like, yeah, we have pretty much talked about how we're going to be in a relationship, who's going to do the house chores, how we're going to raise the kid. But when it comes to money, it's just like a little bit like, hmm. Yeah, because we get so many mixed messages. And even before we're married, we're dating. And one of the things I wanted to ask you was um, when you were doing a lot of your research, I'm sure the topic of like dating, right? And what constitutes a good man Mm. on a date? Does he pay? Does he offer Mm. to pay? Some women, (laughs) as liberal as we are, as as financially independent, financially ambitious as we may be, part of us still would like for him to pay. At the end of the day, it's about attraction, right? And sexual attraction. And if he pays, like, I don't know, our, our cave woman brain just like goes really likes that. 
You know, it's like, oh, he's providing. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So first of all, you nailed that one on the head. I was, I in general was very surprised with a lot of the questions that came up because it's 2019. Why is who pays still such a big deal to people? But it's such a big deal to people because now that we're changing what a quote unquote good man does, it's that gray area is very um, tension inducing. So first, I just want to ask you, where do you fall on this? I fall on this. If if I was, I'm not. I've been married for seven years, so I, I haven't gone on a uh, date in that sense in a long time. But I remember, I like to be pursued. Mm. I do. I don't like the feeling of like asking a man on a date. It just to me, it feels very uncomfortable. It did feel uncomfortable because of how I was raised and what I was raised to believe was the right way to, you know date. And then on the date, if I was asked on a date, then I would at least expect that he would offer to pay, but I would I would offer I would become prepared to pay. And if I didn't want to see the guy again, I would pay definitely <laughs> for myself because back then I had this I had this idea in my head that if he paid for me, then it necessarily meant that I lost some power. Mm-hmm. Not that I would be forced to go on another date with him, but I I didn't want to leave any, I didn't want to leave any sense that there was going, that there was any obligation for me to like hang out with them again. So this is everything you're saying is exact, are exactly the points that everybody else is thinking about right now. Yeah. I'm being completely honest and people might be like, wow, I'm shocked to hear that she thought like this, but (laughs) we we can be evolved, but in some ways we can be so prehistoric. And I have to ask you, I mean, as someone who is championing, championing, champ, Championing, yeah, championing financial feminism. How do you square that? That you want to be paid for? Well, it's not that I want to be paid for all the time. Of over time, like it's going to balance out. You know, in the next date, I will pay. But I kind of feel like initially, if I'm being pursued and he asked me out, then you know, at least come prepared to, you know, pay, but obviously I'm going to offer. And if he's okay with me paying, I'll pay and I won't be disappointed. But I think initially it'd be nice for him to offer. Just like if I were to send, if I were to say, Hey, Cleo, let's go out for lunch. I I want to invite you to, you know, my favorite restaurant. Um, I would at least offer to pay for the two of us. And then if you were really insistent, to split, that's fine. But I think there, it's just, it's a dance. But over time, if you're trying to build a healthy relationship that lasts, then I think you need to, um, you know, remember that you're an equal player in the relationship. So, so what you just said is exactly why people brought up Leave It to Beaver over and over again, even though that show went off in the 1960s. We, we really do have these, um, unscrutinized, uninvestigated ideas, traditional values that we haven't quite squared with our very modern lives. And I, what I ask people to do in this book is actually not like you can feel however you feel, but I wouldn't let it go unchecked anymore or uninvestigated because I'm going to take a gander and assume that 
you know, again, it was very different seven years ago. Like I said, Me Too has changed so much in the gray areas. So, but uh, let's say you were dating now. Mm-hmm. I I feel that you would have the same expectations, but I'm not sure that you would communicate that to your date. And so he would probably be quite confused and unsure because some women really do want to pay for themselves. Yeah. It's it's and it's tricky. Listen, I, I feel bad for guys. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think we send a lot of confusing messages. And I think the I think so I think appropriately what should happen is both people should offer to pay. Like I don't I'm not gonna sit there and look at the bill and look at him, you know, like the bill's gonna come. <laughs> and I did this when I was dating. I wasn't just gonna sit there with my arms folded, you know, or like pretend I was going to the bathroom. <laughs> I would reach for my wallet, totally be prepared to pay, offer to pay for my meal. And if he really insisted, you know, usually that's a great way to say like, well, let me get, let me get this, this time. And then you can get Mm -hmm. me, you can pay for the next meal. It's kind of a great way to like lock in the next date, you know, like it's a great, sort of a great move. And so that's how we would square it with the expectation that, look, we're both capable of paying, but we, in, in, in this, if this is going to turn into a thing, like sometimes I'll treat, sometimes you'll treat. And tonight I'm going to treat because this was like my idea and uh, you accepted my invitation. Like, I think there's a really a graceful way to do it without um, bowing to patriarchy. So my recommendation for people, and this is like a way to help you maneuver all the gray areas in a Me Too world, is to get really clear on how you feel. If you're a guy... Or if you're a woman, like, do you do you want to be paid for? Why? Because that makes you feel taken care of? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's totally fine. But then when the first date comes, like what I said to guys is do do you wanna pay? Right. And I heard I heard totally mixed mess like mixed it's so individual right some men were like it's how i was raised a good man pays it's you know i don't want to hear twice about it like that's how i feel like that makes me feel good to take a woman out and then some men were like i don't get it if we're supposed to be equal how come i have to pay no i want to go dutch and my point is that's either way you feel is absolutely fine. Just get really clear on how you feel and why you feel that way. And then come that date, be like, listen, I know this whole thing gets a little bit awkward, but with everything going on right now, I just want you to know, it makes me feel really good to treat. So I'd love to treat you if that feels okay. Yeah. Right. And that is actually so true. And and I think that's a really eloquent Great script for anyone out there going on a date tonight. <laughs> you can borrow that. You can totally. I have transcripts for these episodes on my website, so you're welcome. But I think that's a really great way to navigate it. It is true that as humans, we like to treat, whether it's treating on a date, whether it's treating a friend to a coffee, mm-hmm. whether it's donating to a charity. We like to be in service of other people. And if it means service of giving our time, our money, remember that. I think that's worth kind of recognizing. And if you are like starting to feel really confused about why you feel that way, like it's not just because you, it's not necessarily because you want to be a dominating (laughs) 
financially dominating person. It doesn't have to be so ugly. It it can just be, it makes me feel good and say it. I, because we don't talk about things. That's, that's how we get in these situations all the time. We expect people to read our minds and they are like, I can't read your mind. And so communicate, be really open about it. Right. In that kind of genuine self-deprecating way that I just scripted for you. And then, um, the immediate follow-up question I got from a bunch of guys were, okay, that sounds good, but only for 50% of the women I date. The other half, they will get genuinely offended Mm. if I say that. And I'm like, you know what? You probably don't want to date that person because it sounds like you have much more traditional values than they do. And like um, news alert, you don't need to date everybody out there. You just need to date the one or two or however many people that you really connect with. So that's the other thing, right? Right. If that is true, because this isn't an isolated thing. I mean, this is probably re- representative of, 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 of a whole host of values that this person exactly. has that may not exactly. be aligned with how you see the world. So this has been so good. I've been kind of like surprised by my own answers a little bit, which makes yeah. you are an excellent journalist, as we've always known. Um, let's a couple questions about money, and this is more about Cleo and her money. Um, book aside, I think everybody needs to buy this book. It's a great, it's a great book club book. I think this is like a great book because you want to discuss all of it with yes. people. Yes, chat it, out. chat it out. Um, so Cleo, you mentioned that earlier in your life you were raised with a lot of these sort of financial feminist values. So curious to know when was kind of a first time or a big memory in childhood that you remembered that you experienced about money. Well, um, gosh, you know my parents will be okay. I'm just gonna share. So my parents are still together. And they have an incredible, loving relationship. And from my perspective as a child, the only time that they fought was about money. And they kept their finances separate. They like my mom has a separate bank account from my dad. And my mom was responsible for some, like the really big ticket items in the relationship. And then my dad was responsible for the kind of is almost reverse. Like he was like the daily fare items. And then my mom did the luxury items, like the mortgage and college and school and stuff like that. Um, and my parents are artists. They don't have a financial background. They don't know a lot about money and money was really uncomfortable for them. And I knew from an early age, I don't, want that. Like it seems scary. And I remember when I was 16, I went to college pretty early um, when I was 16 and my mom gave me Suze Orman's uh, Women and Money and was like, read this and also explain it back to me because I want to know. And I didn't want to read that. That sounded really boring and also scary. And I, I, this, that experience is very much ingrained in my memory. And so when I graduated college, actually my first job was at an investment firm um, as an admin there. But I remember thinking, I want to make 
what for me would have been a lot of money, um, coming from, you know, a background with two artists as parents, because I didn't want to feel unstable in that way. And so I didn't know it had a name furnish until I read your book, um, and started listening to everything that you do. But this concept of financial feminism has been ingrained in me from a very young age because I knew that my mom, even though she wasn't comfortable with money and she was scared of money, she saw that as a really important way for her and me to have agency. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not totally surprised that I went to an investment firm and then to Bloomberg. Um, and I will say, I have, you know, I check my accounts now on the reg, like daily. Um, and I listen to all content about women and money because it's a, it's something that I know. It's like if you know that you always run late, so you set your clock way ahead, so you never run late. I know that it's a really weak spot for me based on my family history. And I, and I never want to be disempowered because of where I am financially. Mm. Just your mom. Oh, huge thanks to my mom. Did you really. end up reading the book? Um, no, I never read the book <laughs> until I started, you know, until I saw the panel that you both were on and wow. then I did read it. Um, yeah, but I, money is, I will say as someone, you know, like I'm a journalist now, right? We didn't get, we don't get into that industry to make a lot of money, but I am really careful with my money and I watch it like a hawk and I see that it's what you've talked about, about women and equality and being able to eject out of a situation that is not safe for Mm -hmm. you. I do personally attribute a lot of that to money. Um, so it's very, very runs deep, runs deep. When did you feel, or are you, I don't know, you can tell me if you're still working on it, but was there a time in your life where you felt like you'd made it like financially or at least you'd overcome, you know, any, any sort of baggage or anything like that? So I, um, the year I got my television show, I knew I was being underpaid and I had a male former mentor. Sorry. He is a mentor, former boss. Um, I worked for him at Bloomberg, uh, and he has a lot of knowledge about media and finance. And I went to him and was like, this is what I'm being paid. And he told me what I should ask for. And I went in and I asked for that. Um, and he kind of coached me about what to say. And I got that number. Um, huge, huge. I mean, like probably a more proud moment for me personally than when I was nominated for a Peabody Award. (laughs) I really, that was a, that was such a big And what was his advice to you? What was the script? It was, so I don't know if you can tell, I mean, hopefully you can't, but when I feel uncomfortable, and I think a lot of people do this, you blubber a little bit, you over explain, you fill the silence. 
And he told me, this is the number you need to go in and say that number and then be quiet and let them do the talking. And don't make, you know, say like, this is what I delivered on this year. This is what I'm going to deliver on next year. This is the number. And then stop talking. (laughs) Which is so important for me to hear because I know as an interviewer, humans hate silence. They hate awkward silences. So if you really want to get someone to open up to you, you ask a question and then you just stay silent and they will fill the silence. Mm -hmm. But in a negotiation setting, I was the one just rambling. Um, So that was the advice and it worked. Congratulations. You're right. Silence is a huge negotiating tool. Huge. I, you, I would take a, I would take a negotiating class from you any day. I'm actually working. Well, thank you. I I recently negotiated over email. So a completely different tactic, but I'm going to send an email to my list soon about that and how I, I basically almost 10 X the offer after a couple of emails, (gasps) just a couple of emails. When it's an email, it's really about bulleting out the value. So you can ramble a little bit on email, but you know, if you keep it really tight and you highlight mm. what's most important and you put it all in one little, you put it all on a silver platter for them and you hit send, you know, and prepare for them not to get back to you for like 18 hours <laughs> as they talk to all the people. Uh, but that's usually a good sign, but that they're considering it oh, as opposed to like, I am I'm no. ready for this. Yeah. Stay tuned. Stay tuned for that. And then last question. This is a question actually from our sponsor, Chase. What is a holiday shopping hack or a financial tip that you like to practice this time of year that helps to alleviate some of that financial burnout around the holidays? We're all spending a lot of money in the last month or two. So anything that you do to kind of curb some of that spending? Oh my gosh. (laughs) This is... Um, it's clicking to me that I am taking my own advice that I give in modern manhood, which is to get really clear on your own motivations and what's important to you and just stick with that. And I feel really strongly about um, not accumulating a lot of tchotchkes and not giving a lot of tchotchkes. Mm-hmm. And so around holiday season, I'm actually really clear on this and have communicated this to loved ones. Like I would love to meet them for dinner. I'd love to treat them to dinner or if they, if they want to go Dutch, totally fine. But I, instead of giving gifts, I usually schedule experiences with my inner circle. And if you're not in my inner circle, I write you a card. Wow. That's really sweet. I like that a lot. Like, or, you know, maybe throw one big party. Exactly. Do a, do a thing that feels really authentic to you. Don't succumb to the pressure and you're just giving for giving sake. Um, I, I love seeing people, but I really, you know, and I feel like I don't have enough time. Sometimes around the holidays too, it, it can go either, either you're super crammed and then you need to book out for, for 2020, which is nice. Cause it gives you something to look forward to, or if works a little bit, you know, sometimes schedules a little more flexible at the end of the year, pop out for a coffee, meet a friend you haven't seen, you know, all fall or since the summer, um, and have that be your holiday treat instead of, I don't know, 
candles yeah, or give books, breaks or peppermint latte, you know, in the middle of the day, it's a much deserved break yeah. and a great yeah. reason to catch up. I love that. I love that a lot. So many things we can continue to talk about, Cleo. I really, first of all, I'm honored that you are familiar with my work, that you've been following my work. I, you know, um, am also a big fan. And now hopefully you have tens of thousands of new fans listening to you on this <laughs> podcast. Cleo oh, Stiller, thanks so much and have a great rest of the year. Great. Thank you so much. You too. Cleo's book again is called Modern Manhood, available everywhere. You can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Cleo MSF. All this information is available at somoneypodcast.com where you can click on the interview and share it. You can also download the transcript and click on Ask Farnoosh, the button, and leave me your questions for our Friday episodes. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And I hope your day is so money. Money.